Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. As we celebrate the Sunday before Christmas Eve, celebrating Advent, there's something... uh, we know that Christmas is special. One of my, my favorite pieces of Christmas is, are the Christmas carols, uh, specifically if children are involved. Um, anybody go to any Christmas plays, pageants, school programs, grandkids programs, anything like that? Um, one, one of the things I love about Christmas carols, specifically the older the better, um, is uh, watching people get to go like all out on the Christmas carol. Like, if you sing a song in real life, like a normal song that's not a Christmas carol, um, you kind of back your voice down because you're not really sure of the words. And, like, if you can make pitch or all those kind of things, all those musical pieces. But when it comes to Christmas carols, you just get to kind of go, like, all out on it. Like, and the kid that's usually, like, belting it is so far off key and so far off pitch. And so, like, it's just, it's fun. Right? It's okay. We can laugh at each other going all out on Christmas carols because it's the only time of the year that you get a pass, right? So, like, you just go at it. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, and it's the story of the, the, the magi who get to come, and they, they're part of this Christmas story. And it's a very unique aspect of the Christmas story because they don't actually come to the nativity. They, they come a couple of years into Jesus' life. And Matthew is, is taking really detailed notes to, to just kind of show the story, the role they have uh, in the story. Matthew chapter 2, we'll, we'll look there in just a second. But as I was reflecting on uh, this Sunday, I was, uh, I was reminded about one of my favorite gifts. And, and you, you kind of do that this time of the year. And, and, and several years ago, about actually about 20 years ago, um, I, had, I had a mentor give me a book that was almost 100 years old. And as I, I was afraid I was going to break the book, so like a good 16-year-old, I didn't read it, all right? So um, not because I wasn't going to break the book, but because 16-year-old, I didn't want to read. And so pulled this book off, and I was probably 18 or so when I, when I pull it and just kind of dust the cover. And the name of the book was called The Borden of Yale, okay? The Borden of Yale. And it, it's this biography of this young man by the name of William Borden. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, uh, the Borden family business was booming at the turn of the 19th century, the 20th century. Um, if, if, your family, if your family name is englazed in every milk bottle and every milk sticker and every milk carton that's ever consumed in the United States, your family has done pretty well. So if you're familiar with the Borden Milk Company, all right, this is their son. He's, he's, he's born, he's born a millionaire. Uh, side note, I just read that like uh, the, the, the young prince and princess of, of the UK, uh, Charlotte, is, was born like as a billionaire, which is fascinating. How are you born as a billionaire? Which is born So this guy, he's born as a millionaire, graduates co- uh, high school in Chicago, and this kind of just tells you the status that he had as the Borden family. Um, so his graduation gift was his parents gave him an all-expense-paid 365-day trip around the world with a mentor. 
And so he just takes a year and he travels the world and this guy just kind of pours into his life and, and teaches him things. And, and he comes back and he goes and he, he enrolls in Yale. Obviously one of the most prestigious schools in our country. And, and, and as he, he, he goes through Yale, it's, it's obvious like he's gifted. He walks out and he's, he's kind of a cut ahead of everybody else. And so he graduates from Yale and at that graduation moment, there's something that had stirred in his heart on that trip around the world where he began to realize that his calling in life was not to take over the family business, but that God was actually calling him to like, go live overseas. And so as he's kind of processing this stuff, like, the family kind of has one of these like, come-to-Jesus meetings of like, hey, you are the heir to a, a large family business. Our name is printed in everybody's home. If somebody's consuming milk, the milk guy brings milk to the house with your name on it. It is your job and your calling to like, keep the family business running. And he goes, no, I, I can't. And he had he'd written in his journal some, some things, and, and he knew that God was calling him overseas. And so he actually like, gives away his fortune, and as a 25-year-old makes a trek to to minister, to live among the Muslims in China. And on the way, he has to stop in Egypt, and he does some learning, and he's doing some, some language school, and he's on his journey on the way to China, and he contracts meningitis, and he dies. He's 25-year-old, the millionaire, the heir to, to the Borden family business, and he's just given everything away, and on his way there, six months into the journey, he, he dies. And I was reflecting on that story. I was, I was thinking about this, this narrative in Matthew chapter 2. And uh, nobody dies in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, uh, the Magi still live. But there's an aspect that we look at when it comes to worshiping our Savior where it's an all or nothing thing. That when it comes to the story about these men who travel, they bring their stuff, and we look at the, the narrative of Scripture that worship is not one of these things we can have to. It's, it's all or it's nothing. In Matthew chapter 2, if you grab your, your bulletin, as we've affectionately called it, uh, this Advent season, um, it's printed in there, but I'm, I'm going to read it to us. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Quick backstory on these characters. Matthew's gospel, one of four gospels, two, two Christmas accounts, one in Luke, one in Matthew. Matthew writes intentionally for the Jewish people to understand that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. So his intentional writing is to trace back everything through the Old Testament in history. King Herod is a paper tiger king. Anybody know what a paper tiger king is? He has the position and no authority. All right, so Caesar Augustus is the king of Rome. He puts Herod in place, and as long as Herod does everything he tells him to do and there's no disturbance, King Herod gets to be king. And then we see these wise men from the east that come to Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles are going to say the word magi. These were men from Babylon, Persia, and they were full of wisdom. They operated in a priestly sect, and they were, they were kings over or different parts of, of, of their society. They were parts of different people groups. So they were the kings in this area, and they had studied the stars to make sense of the world. 
So they were, they were well-educated men. Verse 2, saying, these men come, and they, they come to King Herod, and they say, Who is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. It's really important to know these, these men were not Jews. They were from a faraway place, and yet they show up to King Herod and go, hey, where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star, and we've come to worship him. How do men from a faraway place actually get to know that there's a star and that there's a king of the world, Savior that's being born? Now, obviously, God could have revealed to them in a dream. They'd say the stars, but if you actually trace back to the, the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 24, which is in the beginning of the Bible, there's this prophet, and he's not a Jew. He's not actually a good prophet. His name is Balaam. Anybody ever read the story of Balaam? Balaam has a fun story. A donkey actually talks to him. It's fascinating. It's cool. It's weird. All right? And so Balaam, in Numbers chapter 24, a bad king, an enemy king of the nation of Israel, hires Balaam to actually put a curse on the nation of Israel. And instead of putting a curse, when Balaam opens his, now, his mouth, he actually prophesies God's goodness over the nation of Israel and God's blessing. In Numbers chapter 24, Balaam would say this in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star is emerging from Jacob. A scepter is rising from Israel, and it smashes the brow of Moab and the foundations of all the sons of Seth. In Numbers chapter 24, long before we get to a Christmas story, God uses a Gentile, a non-Jew prophet to begin to prophesy that there was a coming king and there would be a star that emerges over Bethlehem. Several hundred years later, nearly a thousand years later, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet would say, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the people, but the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. So we see throughout the Old Testament that there's these prophecies about star, light that's coming. But it still doesn't make sense. How do men from Persia get a hold of, God could rule a dream, get a hold of this prophecy? And you come about 125 years after Isaiah makes his prophecy. And we come to this, this book in the Old Testament, this prophet by the name of Daniel. You may have ever read the story of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. Like, you may not have grown up around church, but you heard this crazy story about Daniel who gets thrown in a pit with lions. Daniel and his friends became wise men in what became Persia. The nation of Israel had actually been taken captive from their homes. They moved to Babylon, which eventually became Persia. And they would have taken the scriptures with them in a very, like, difficult time, a time that was like God disciplining the nation of Israel. And so God would use this story where he wove in the numbers, Isaiah's prophecy, and then we go to literally the captivity of Israel to put at least four of his, his followers, four Israelites, into the wise men, the men who had become magi, that would have known the narrative of Scripture in the Old Testament. So these wise men, some 500 years after Daniel and the book of Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel are here in this story. We look in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. We'll pick up and read the rest of the narrative. When King Herod heard this, 
he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was. The star had seen it, they had seen it, it's rising. It led them until they had come and stopped at the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. In this story, we, you see Herod, and he's, he's kind of a side character in this, this narrative. He's, he's greatly disturbed. And when um, in this aspect, later on, we find out that he would go and he would try to kill all the two-year-old uh, males in the, in, the, in the region. God reveals himself to a dream to Joseph, and they flee to Egypt with baby Jesus. But right here in this, this passage, with a disturbed king, Jesus is now living in a house. He's about two years old. We don't know if it's, it's uh, two men who come, that are part of the Magi. We don't know if it's 12 men who come. We just know there are three gifts. So that whole story, like, uh, uh, Scott, you blew our mind a few weeks ago telling us, like, there's no donkey in the Christmas story. I think everybody in this room had to go validate, like, this man is either a heretic because every nativity scene has a donkey in it. Like, the three Magi, we don't know if there were three. We just know there were three gifts. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which was just pocket in your mind, a representation of the gold was a part of a, a royal gift. The frankincense was a, a divine gift. It was, it was given to the divinity of the day. And then the myrrh was what you would embalm, what you would, you would you'd put on someone's body at their death. So they bring these three gifts, and they're not random. In fact, the same prophecy that Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 60, he would actually go, there are men that will travel on camels from far away places from the nations, and they will give you both gold and frankincense and myrrh. So this was a part of the narrative, and Matthew's trying to include it to go, hey, this was the one that God had promised. This was the one that all the prophets had talked about. Thank you, Doriana. It wasn't Doriana. I just, just Kirby. I'm sorry. It was in that direction. And thank you, Doriana, and Kirby. I'm from now on. If you say anything, you're just gonna be thank you, Doriana. So, um, so here's here's why this is a big deal. Twice in this narrative, it comes that these wise men travel from a faraway place, bringing their gifts, so they get to worship a baby. And in this passage, when we look at what it means to worship, is that God desired for all of his creation to worship him. So to, to put ourselves in their story is to go, at this time, there was one people, one, one race of people that God chose, the nation of Israel, to reveal himself to. 
And at this moment, God is reminding all of creation that every, every piece of, of grass, every tree, every star in the sky, every person, every animal, every nation was uniquely designed to give him worship and glory. And what he's doing in this moment is it's reminding the nation of Israel that he's not just a savior for the Jews, he's a savior for all people. And that when he designed us, he designed us literally to worship him. It was the, the main intent of how he wired us was so that we could actually enjoy him which means that every part of our story and every part of our relationships and every struggle and every success was designed for one intentional purpose. To be a vehicle for not just us, but so that the nations would be able to worship Him. Like, the wrestle with purpose in our life. Like, yes, we, we want to know what God has uniquely designed us here to do, but we were designed so that all of creation would worship Him. Which means when we start to look at our relationships, when we start to look at people, we don't see skin and bones. We see a soul that was uniquely, divinely designed for one intentional purpose, which means we get to live our life and in our conversations and the ways, the struggles that we walk through to go, Lord, this is, this is for you. I want all people to know you, to worship you. The second thing that we, we see in this passage and the narrative of Scripture is that Worship consumes and confronts everything about us. Worship. God didn't just design every person, all nation, all of creation to worship Him. He designed worship so that it would consume and confront every part of our brokenness. And, and we talk about worship and, and more than just a song, but a posture in which we live is that it, it consumes whatever we worship becomes the thing that we care about, the things that we desire, and the things that structure our lives. So if we, if we worship our family, then our family calendar begins to dictate all of our life. It consumes us. If we worship our, our finances, our job, the worry and anxiety of those things begin to consume us. There's no way to worship something and it not eat every part of you. And so when God designed us to worship, he was going, wait, I actually want to consume all of you so that you know that I am, I'm not just more than enough, I'm everything. And so when we walk into a posture of worship, Jesus, and we're worshiping Jesus, Jesus actually wants to consume us. In Isaiah chapter 6, he begins to consume our wants. And you see this with the prophet Isaiah He's literally standing before the throne and he has this picture and the Lord is, is being worshipped. The cherubims, these, these, these weird creatures in creation that, that show up in Isaiah and they show up in Revelation, they're worshipping Jesus. And the only thing they can utter out of their mouth is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah goes, I can't do that because I'm an unclean person, but I want to be clean. And so literally they would this picture of, of literally Isaiah's heart being healed because what he wanted changed. Literally, they'd take coals from an altar, they'd press it against his lips, and that literally every part of him would be consumed. In Acts chapter 4, 
our longings change. I love the story of Acts chapter 4. Um, everybody remember Peter? Like when Jesus dies, before Jesus dies on a cross, there's this, he's got his friend named Peter. Uh, Peter is the guy who pulls a sword out the moment that Jesus is being arrested and like cuts off a person's ear, right? He was aiming for his neck. He missed, okay? So he got an ear. Jesus puts it back on. In Acts chapter 4, and, and then, then Peter would go on, deny Jesus three times. In Acts chapter 4, Peter's just delivered like the sermon of a lifetime. The Holy Spirit's fallen. Thousands of people have started to follow Jesus. And, and then all of a sudden in Acts chapter 4, like things begin to change for Peter. Like um, he's no longer like this, this great communicator. People are like, hey, uh, you might need to go to jail. Like we need to shut this down. We see this play out all throughout the book of Acts, right? Peter, John, these most intimate disciples that we watch that as they begin to truly live into a posture of worship, the longings of the things that they deeply desired began to shift, that it was no longer about their safety. It was no longer about the things that they wanted, their story that they were writing. It was about what does Jesus want? Now walk into that whether that's me living in a prison or that means me struggling in a job, if it means me walking in with a very difficult place for a very long time, it doesn't matter what I want. It's what Jesus wants. What Jesus, how does Jesus get worshipped? The third thing is that worship permanently changes our posture. Pastor Austin mentioned Philippians chapter 2 last week, but it's Paul writes to the church that to take on the mind of Jesus is to humble ourselves to become a servant. That Jesus would even take on becoming a servant to the point of death. And so when we talk about worship, man, there, there's this beautiful, wonderful reality of, of the angels declaring God's goodness. But really, worship is us learning to die before Jesus because he's everything. And until we're willing to die and go, God, I want all that to change in me, we don't actually get to experience the fullness of who Jesus is. And it's in that posture of going, God, my neediness, my brokenness, my mistakes, my, my story, my finances, whatever those things are, I, I just, I want you more than all of those. So worship consumes us but it also confronts us. And what I love about our, our saviors, there's a, there's a great picture. I love this, this painting. It sits in Oxford and, and St. Paul's Cathedral, which is just like, it's not a gem for a church. So if you like go look up St. Paul's, like it's like stained glass and beautiful paintings. Uh, one of the great cathedrals in the world. And in the front left-hand corner of the nave is, is this picture of a guy named Holman Hunt painted and on it is, is this man knocking on an overgrown shed. The shed was the picture of, of the man, the groundskeeper for St. Paul's Cathedral in the 1700s. So it's, there's vines growing everywhere. It's unkept. And there's this man holding a lantern, and the, the, uh, he, he's got a, a halo on his head. There's a light just kind of reflecting that it's Jesus. And Jesus is standing there at the door just knocking. And there's no handle, like, there's no handle on the door for, for Jesus to open it. There's, there's a 
painting of Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. I love that our Savior doesn't press into areas that we're not willing to surrender. But he goes, hey, can I have that? Because I want to give you something better. And he stands at the door just knocking, going, I designed you for something greater. I designed you for something greater than just, just surviving in a job or making money or figuring out what your purpose is in this season. I designed you to worship me, but can I have all of you? And so in order for him to have all of us, he has to confront the pieces of us that don't look like him. So there, there are three things we, we see in this text from the Magi's. It, it confronts our insufficiency. It confronts our insufficiency of, and our deep desire to want to be someone. These men were someone. Like the Magi, like they, were, they had both finances, they had position, they had wealth, they had authority, and yet they come to the place where that's not enough. And so Jesus confronts our insufficiency when we worship him. And what, what's so crazy is he models this for us when Jesus is walking the, the Via Della Rosa on, on his way to Golgotha, to die on a cross. They literally put a cross on him, and he's carrying it up this journey that our Savior was so weak, he couldn't carry up his own cross. He had to ask for help. In his humanity, like us, he showed his insufficiency. But in his deity, that he was fully God, fully man, he goes, I'm more than enough. And if our Savior who comes to worship him goes, hey, there's part of your humanity that you just cannot handle. You will get to your end. He goes, but I want to be your sufficiency. The second thing that it confronts is not just our insufficiency, it confronts our wants and dreams. I often wonder what it was like for Jesus to sit in a garden the night that he's arrested and he go, God, if there's any other way besides me dying on a cross, could we do the other way? But if this is your story, if this is the story that you've written from the beginning of creation, I want to be obedient to your story. To worship is to actually take everything we want and desire and go, God, you want something so much greater. This is, this is my, my story. I want to write it out, dreams, big goals, and go at the end of it. I want your story more than mine. The final thing that it, it confronts is our own authority. Jesus, I, I love on, the, on this picture on a cross where he, he actually says he, he gave his spirit away. Like he, he humbled himself to go, hey, this is, I have the authority to give my life away and then to take it back up in three days. You and I don't have that authority. We don't pick the day that we die. We don't get to pick if we come back alive. We don't get to, we don't get to pick if, if tomorrow is going to be the way that we designed it. And when Jesus in our worship, it confronts the reality that you and I like to be in charge. 
You and I like to get the things that we want, which means this, we have to control life and we have to create the terms in which we live life, which you and I cannot do. We, we designed, so I've got to make this much income. These people need to like me. This is the way that life is supposed to go. And when we, when we need that, when we need to have authority of that, when we need to control that, then we find that everything we do breaks. We find life very anxious. We find that as we push in and as we want more and more to have control and authority, how insufficient we actually are. And as worship confronts our desire to have authority, it actually goes, God, we're giving you all authority. And when God has all authority, guess what? We get to play life on life's terms. To play life on life's terms actually gets to mean, hey, as things happen, I trust that God is both the Savior, the ruler, and the King. So if, so if my job doesn't work the way that I want it right now, it's okay. If I'm not where I thought I would be at 30, it's okay. If, if this person's upset with me, it's okay. If, if we look at life and, and we go, God, all authority, it's yours, you have it. I get to experience the story that he's written for me, not begrudgingly, but with great joy because it was divinely written and the, the totality of its beauty is far greater than I could understand. So worship consumes and it, it confronts and the final thing we, we see in this, this point is that Jesus has always set the terms of worship. Jesus sets the terms of, of worship. He goes, I, he wants everything from us so that he can be everything to us. He wants the good things in our life so that he can be the perfect thing in our life. And so when we talk about worship, there's no way to get away from it besides this posture of both surrender and submission. The third point, if you're, you're taking notes, is worship gets us Jesus. But it requires both our submission and our sacrifice. And the word submission, you, just, you put this aspect of like it's, it's our vulnerability that we recognize our humanity but in this story of these magi, these men coming, it was a recognition that is all of who they were, that they could kneel before a baby king and, and, and love this, like those gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, those were all things because they were, they were also experts in divination. Those were all things that they thought they had authority over. And they come and they sit them before a baby to go, hey, all yours. All, all power, all royalty, all divinity, all power and authority over death, all of yours. And to submit to a baby king in this, this practice of worship is that vulnerability is the only way, the vulnerability to Jesus is the only way to confront the idols that I hold on to. And when I'm, when I'm vulnerable before the Lord or to lay bare before the Lord, not just like, 
uh, oh man, Jacob, I'm having a hard time with this. But like when I sit before the Lord and I go, Lord, I'm broken and not enough. And if you don't show up, this is all waste. It moves my heart to thanksgiving when I'm bare before the Lord because we get to understand that everything we have come, came from someone else. The story that we're trying to live, the, the not enough money, the, the, the hurting parts of our, our, our relationships, our story. I love Lashad started this series like broken families. Like when I sit before the Lord, just vulnerable before him, I get to actually start to thank God that he gave me all of those things uniquely designed in a story to worship him. But not only does it move me to thanksgiving, it, it will always, worship will always move us from thanksgiving to confession and repentance. When we recognize that he has given us every good and perfect gift, we have to admit our own inability to have and to hold life without Jesus, and we have to confess that we're not enough and that every time we've tried, we've fallen short. I, I love a great song. We're going to sing in just a moment that moves my heart to worship. But to live in a posture of worship, we can't skip the steps of thanksgiving and then confession and repentance. If Jesus isn't confronting us about our own weakness and inability, we're not, we're not worshiping him fully because he's, he's wanting to change us into his image, into his glory, into his beauty. So he will always be confronting. He will always desire to consume. But not only in our our submission, our vulnerability before him to confession and repentance. There's this beautiful picture of sacrifice we get to experience in worship. Our, our sacrifice is to take everything God has given us. I'm just, I'm just going to define simple things like our time, like our bank accounts, our jobs, our relationships, lack of relationship, our singleness, Those are all things the Lord's given us that we get to give back to him. And what we find out is that in our sacrificial worship, we get to matter in the story. That our lives actually matter by laying back down before the Lord everything he's actually given us. And that sacrificial generosity will always be the fruit of a posture of worship that everything was given to me by him, for him. Like, just, just paint this picture that we have a loving God who would give you every struggle and every victory to give it back to him as part of worship. Every struggle with a child, every struggle at a job, every, like, he says, hey, I just want that back as an aspect of worship. Your wealth of time, your wealth of skill, your wealth of money, like, I want, I want all of it. Your lack of skill, your lack of money, I want, I want all of it. My, my favorite just picture of, of this story, Jesus is talking to, like, these, these rich religious people, and Luke records 
this narrative of this like widow. In Luke chapter twenty-one, Jesus goes uh, the the you know all of the faithful people of the church the, they come to the synagogue and they they give their offering and it's great and wonderful and then this this I just imagine in my head like this this lady kind of hunched back over she's lost a lot. She comes and she drops what they call a, a mite. Now, a mite was a coin that was about an eighth of a penny, all right? So usually like, yep, pennies, you are wealthy to this lady, all right? And so she drops an eighth of a mite, or a mite in, about eighth of a cent. And Jesus goes, hold on, wait, wait. All of you have given out of your abundance. This woman gave everything she had. Which one has truly worshipped? And so when we look at our abundance and our lack thereof, we get to go, oh, it was all his from the beginning. So we get to give sacrificially. Jesus desires to consume and confront every broken part of us so that we get to enjoy him fully. The invitation that he puts before us is do we want to know him fully? Oftentimes we are tempted and pleased with singing some songs, giving some money, and holding on to the things in our heart that we still want to control. We look at these magi, these men that crafted from the story that God would go, hey, I want all nations to worship me. I want the wealthiest and like the, we, we didn't read the shepherds but the shepherds who would have been the, the poorest I want, I want all of them to worship me and if you, you live in a field or you live in a palace everything I've given you and I've given all things I have authority over all things was designed so that you could give it back in worship so that you could actually fully know me but that means I get everything. So the question this morning, and we're going to take about 120 seconds, is what part of the everything are you still holding on to? What are the parts of your life that you've, you've yet to just go, Lord, I want you to consume that. I want you to change that. I need to give that over to you. And as we, we take our, our 120 seconds, we're going to sing in just a few moments. Like there's, there's an aspect of just thanksgiving, confession, and repentance where we've sang our songs and we've done our little bit and we're still holding on to the, some broken places in our heart and God's just going, I want to change that. I want it. I want you to know what it's like to be fully known and fully loved in every part of you. So as you take two minutes, sit quietly. If you need to create space to sit with the Lord and surrender some things, you sit and surrender. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. 
It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.